Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have another special twofer for you. We've been doing a lot of these lately. This time we are talking to the wonderful Andrew Roachford and then the incredible singer, songwriter, producer, Teddy Geiger. I'll tell you more about Teddy when we get there, but let's talk about Andrew. So, if you're an American, you, you may only know him from his song, this one right here, Cuddly Toy, which was like a number 25 hit, I think, in 1989. It gets a little confusing. Sometimes Andrew is the lead singer of a band called Roachford, and sometimes he's his own solo under his own name. Well, he remained huge in the UK, always has been. In fact, he's an MBE. I talked to him about that in here, whether you are an MBE or you have an MBE. I can't remember, but anyway, we talk about that. So, in the States, it's just Cuddly Toy, which is still incredible, such a great single. But he's been going strong ever since. And his sound has sort of evolved from this kind of almost alternative rock, reminds me a little bit of like In Excess, to over the years, it's become very soulful R&B, kind of jazz fusion, retro soul, it's great. In fact, he put out a new album recently called Twice in a Lifetime, which is fantastic. Now next month, he's going on a tour of the UK doing soulful Christmas songs. All the information is on his website. So we talk about all of this, we talk about kind of, you know, what happened in the US anyway, and in case you don't know, he, <laughs> as if he already doesn't have enough, he also sings with Mike and the Mechanics. Speaking of bands who made a splash in the U.S. and then kind of disappeared, at least from us, who are big, remain big in other parts of the world, but don't focus on the U.S. so much. So he does that as well. Anyway, there's a ton to talk about. I have always, always really liked Andrew and his music and his style. So I wanted to make sure that we talked uh, to get ready for this tour that he's going on next month, okay? I think... I assume he called me from London. Everyone else seems to. Okay, first and foremost, I gotta say, Andrew, I've been watching, I follow you on social media, and you've been posting these great pictures of you with Mike and the Mechanics on tour, and it looks like you just got back from Germany or something, and you always take these great photos of these beautiful theaters that you guys are playing in, and I'm just, I'm so envious because... I don't know if you guys would ever come back to the States, but tell me about this tour. Mike and the Mechanics must be, I mean, they're a much bigger, I think people, Americans, casual music fans in America probably would think, probably would forget or not realize that those guys have a very steady, uh, solid career happening still in Europe, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, um, as I do, you know. So, um, yeah. I mean, Mike and Mechanics, maybe they had a period where they kind of, it kind of stopped because the two original lead singers, I mean, Paul Carrick is do, went off to do his own thing. Paul Young, who, who sang songs like Miracle Mechanics songs, he sadly died, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then um, 12 years ago, I got the phone call from Mike that he was writing uh, and was looking for a co-writer and someone to maybe sing on the stuff. And we started back then. That's where it all started. And it he ended called, up years later. Yeah, he <laughs> called you out of the blue? Did you two know each other? Well, his, his, his producer called me okay. out of the blue. Uh, I had bumped into Mike at a few promo, like TV show stuff, but 
I didn't really know him, no. Yeah. Uh, of course, I was familiar with mechanics music, but I and, and Genesis, of course. Um, but I didn't know Mike. So when we had our first meeting, it was at his home studio, and we literally started writing. He said hello, kind of got acquainted, and then we literally just start, went straight in and started writing, and we had an instant uh, synergy, a great energy. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. But the intention at first was not to have you be the lead singer. You were just going to collaborate on some songs. I'm not sure what really was in Mike's head, whether he was really uh, clear about it. And he didn't know, he knew my stuff, but he didn't know how it was going to work. He was just sort of, uh, he'd heard from a few people because Mike and Mechanics straddled the pop, rock and soul world. Yes. I was one of the people that I, he should get in touch with. One that of the makes few sense. Ways that could probably work on that. That makes sense. He, yeah, but as soon as he heard me sort of humming and doing stuff, he knew it was going to work and literally just said to me that day, uh, uh -huh. so, you know, what's happening with your band? Would you have time to maybe get involved in a mechanics thing as well? It, literally that first day and i was shocked that's crazy touring <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and he was like yeah and i was like well okay i'll have a you know after that went home and had a think about it and then that was it we we did an album together yeah the road. that was the first one great and album we went out on the road together that's wild i mean at that point i don't know you you're a you're a specifically uk or european uh success as you know in the in america it's very it's different and i'll ask you more about that later but i'm imagining you joining a band like that is adding strength to strength you two unless i don't know was your profile lower and this helped or was it more like i got a great thing going i like these guys i'm gonna do both well because i uh obviously kept touring and kept going my profile was quite uh quite high yeah. But it was almost like the mechanics introduced me to another crowd. Yeah, okay. Of course, yes. Mike and Mechanics as a, a a brand was known. So people, you say the name and people knew. Instead, yes. oh, yeah, Mike and Mechanics. Um, but they, they, you know, they hadn't toured for a while and everything. So they were, they were needing a kick, a restart and a kickstart. Yeah. And actually, when we first started touring, the numbers weren't as high as they are now. Mm -hmm. There was skepticism because obviously it'd been a while and obviously it was like new vocalist. What's that all about? Right. You know, people, all, you know, people are going to be skeptical. Um, but when people realized it was a different thing and that it was good, you know, yeah. uh, the numbers started to go up, the gigs started selling out. And now they, they you know, we, we did such a, this year we did such a long tour and all the gigs were like, sold out it was amazing oh, amazing yeah. i love uh the letter off of the let me fly album <laughs> yes you. tell me something about the creation of that song it's so good well that one came about we were in the studio with mike uh and a couple of guys that uh mike knew from before that it was like an experiment and it just one of those songs that just happened and mm. it was all about the mood, you know, I was playing some keyboards and yeah. I had this weird sort of organ sound and it was, it was all about this, this mood. And Mike had an idea for the lyric about 
stumbling upon a letter that you found in, you know, in a drawer that uh-huh. completely changed everything that you, well, it, it opened up to another side in someone that you knew very well, i.e. a partner. Yes. And it kind of started on the whole, it opened up a whole new thing. Yes. Uh, just because it was something you didn't know about this person that you, that you thought you knew really well. Yeah. So it, was, it had a sinister thing about it too. I love it. I wondered, I mean, we, I think we can agree that Paul Carrick has one of the greatest, uh, you know, soul voices in history. And I'm wondering if so do you, and I'm wondering if some of Mike's thinking was we need someone to hit living years out of the park. Andrew Roachford can do that job. You know what I mean? Well, you know, uh, I think that what it what it is is that something when it comes to me when it comes to the word soul it's about how emotive how much can you really yeah. move people how can yeah. you make people go oh my god I'm feeling this lyric and yeah I do have that knack and I guess that's why you know <laughs> you the last tour I mean looking out into the audience you're doing living years and I do a different intro to it I do my whole oh. little bit on the beginning uh people are just losing it. I mean, yeah. properly, like, it's like a room full of tears, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm doing this really well or really bad, you know. <laughs> but, uh, 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 but seriously, I remember seeing on this tour, it was a whole family. You could see that there was, okay, the sister, brother, dad, but mum was missing. And oh. I, you could tell the story. And they yeah. were falling apart, you know, on that song. Uh-huh. And I and I started struggling to keep it together, yeah. to get through the song, um, and of course I've got so much respect for Paul Carrick's um, vocals, yeah. uh, and him as a vocalist. You know, he's like a perfect vocalist and everything. Yeah. What he yeah. does is sort of, it's pitch perfect, it's tone perfect. He's amazing. You know, I've got probably more rough at the edges. I'm more of a, uh, you know, I grew up listening to more bluesier edge stuff and uh, more. Uh, so, you know, stuff like Otis, that's got a bit more sort of that balls to it. Yeah. Uh, but it's about the emotion. And yeah. that's what's good about uh, me and Paul is that we're not singing it exactly the same. You know, I wouldn't yeah. try to sort of compete with Paul in his own arena. Good point. I, just, good point. I bring my thing to it. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of touring, this winter in December, you're going on this Christmas tour. Um, where you're going to be playing your own hits. And whenever I read about this, I keep seeing soul Christmas songs. So are you specifically, are you singing Christmas songs with your soulful voice? Or are you singing songs that relate to a more R&B soulful Christmas? Does that make sense? Yes. And it's a bit of both. Okay. Obviously, um, I discovered a lot of songs from my favorite artists. A lot of my artists, not all, but a lot of them are soul singers yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh and i discovered that most of them have done uh christmas albums and yeah. you listen to them and some of them are well-known christmas songs done in a completely different way or some of them are songs that you don't aren't christmas classics like uh i covered a stevie wonder song called someday at christmas that i didn't even know until a few years ago yeah uh, and I, I went out with, um, I did a show at Royal Albert Hall and there was the BBC Orchestra and it was uh, for a soulful Christmas, which was like a, a whole new concept. It's only been going for a couple of years with a DJ called Trevor Nelson and it goes down so well. Wow. And I just thought, 
wow, it's just it's just another take on Christmas songs, which I think is fits my voice so well. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and it makes a great evening for people because they get the core of what soul music is. I've grown up with soul music, yeah. and I feel that that's what I am at my core. Yeah, one of I my favorite. Uh, one, uh, probably my favorite Christmas song that's not a traditional hymn or whatever is Donny Hathaway's "This Christmas." Do you do that? Because you'd you'd be great at that. You know, I I mean, who doesn't like that? If you no if you kidding, like music, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and that was kind of my issue. Well, one of my issues with it was is because it's kind of known in the soul circles. A lot of the so called soulful R and B vocalists have done it, so it's uh, almost. It's the go-to one, and so okay. I've, I've too obvious. Really, Got it. Yeah, in a way, but then yeah. I realized that there's a lot of people who still don't know it because they don't know Donny Hathaway. Yeah, Donny Hathaway so died yes. uh, tragically when he was starting to get, you know, be introduced to Europe, and and uh, so a lot of people didn't get to know Donny first time round or whatever. Uh, but again, it's also the standard, the benchmark that Donny Hathaway is is such a high standard. Yes. Uh, I also, my other issue is, well, you know what? He, there's nothing to bring to it as far mm -hmm. as in the, he's done it. Okay. I like, to, I like to approach songs. I may do that, having said all that, because I haven't, I haven't got the list fully uh, formed okay. yet. But, but on the other side is I like to do songs that people don't hear the soul, the obvious yeah. soul side to it, and bring that out, you know? Because what a lot of people don't, know as well is they don't appreciate is a lot of the artists that they've grown up to that aren't necessarily known as soul singers like the elton johns uh, the, the the john lennons that they grew up they listened to a staple diet of soul music and that's a yeah. big part of what like paul carrick as well and, yeah yeah and, and you know a lot of the genesis guys um uh, peter gabriel there are r&b fans uh phil collins uh, and but when they do the music, they do it in their way, and they bring. But I want to more highlight the soul side of those yes. tunes. Yeah, it's interesting you say this. You talk about your reinterpretation of finding the soul in a sh in a song that might not obviously be soulful. When I listen yes. back to your, on I love your encore album because yes. those are most of the covers on there are so out of left field. They're not mm -hmm. what you would think. And when I yeah. listen to something like under the bridge, I mean, yeah. you've taken this <laughs> red hot chili pepper song about copying drugs yes. and made it into a, like what a beautiful morning. Bill Withers almost kind of, you know, jaunty upbeat thing. Where did you even come up with that? Wait a minute. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner Sometimes I feel like my only friend Is a city I live in city of angels Lonely as I am Together we cry I drive on her streets Cause she's my companion I walk through her hills cause she knows who I am She sees my good deeds and she kisses me when death I never worry, now that's a lie 
you know, when we were in the studio doing that album, me and the producer was like, we can't just do a cheesy, if it's going to be covers, it's got to show my artistry. Yeah. I'm a songwriter myself. And so you have to bring something different to it because all of those songs, I respect them so much as complete in themselves. So what yeah. am I even trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel? It's already there. Yeah. So, so, I, so I wanted to bring my take to those songs. Um, and what I love about the Red Hot Chili Peppers is they are the same. You know, they were doing stuff like they were essentially a rock band, but they were doing stuff like, you know, they had George Clinton producing their album, which is he's yeah. a funk. He's a funk guy. Yeah. And they knew that because they wanted they were into that as well. And that was quite what made them so unique is that they weren't completely sort of fitting comfortably into that niche of like, well, we're a rock band. They were just yeah. doing their own thing. Yeah, it's so true. I th I just love that album of yours. And Holding Back the Years is one of my favorite songs anyway. Holding back the years And thinking of the fear I've had so long and When somebody hears Listen to the fear that's gone Strangled by the wishes of Peter Longing for the arms of Maida Get to me the sooner or later And you do such a great, it, it's not quite as left field as yes. the Under the Bridge cover was, but it's so honorable, it's so respectful. You nail that one too. What's Thank your you history with the, with that? Did you, I mean, Mick Hucknell's one of the, another great soul singer. You've probably yeah. met him or know him or yeah. what? I've met him a couple of times. Uh, we have a lot of uh, mutual respect for each other. Yeah. Um, yes, I met him. I'd, he had a he had running a club called the Hacienda in Manchester, and I also met him at Top of the Pops, you know. Yeah. And my my first major tour, I was opening for a guy called Terence Trindarby back way you. back when in 1989. Uh -huh. it was. He's been on here. He's a trip. Yes, he is a trip, and he, yes. know, we're still in touch uh, occasionally. He lives in Italy, but yeah. he's originally well, he's an American. Yeah. But, uh, so, but but Terence Trent Darby was supporting Mick Hucknall was his first tour, mm -hmm. and so we have this sort of weird connection. Um, and of course, because Mick Hucknall's a big soul fan, I kind of understand where a lot of his uh, influences are coming from because it's coming from the same place. Yeah. He just has a different take on it than me. But holding back the years, I was so surprised to hear that it was an original song by Mick Hucknall because it sounds like a soul classic. Mm -hmm. And this is a boy from Manchester, whatever. Yeah. And wow, it was definitely inspired. And I, and I, so I, you know, it was almost, that one was already a soul song in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard his original punk version of that song? Because they were, he was a punk singer 
before he was a, before yeah, he was so simply hard, red was. yeah and that song dates back to when he was still kind of a punk singer and it's yeah. out there on youtube it's a trip um okay i wanted to ask you about terrence because uh when you came on the scene i remember so well seeing the video for cuddly toy and feeling like i mean i was 16 15 16 years old at the time and i, was, I remember I was nine <laughs> uh, well one of us has aged better than the other and you did that is for sure true um anyway i remember watching that video being not confused but kind of astounded that i was watching a black man perform what is almost like alternative rock because yeah. as you know in the states if you're a black man you either need to be a r&b lover man or a rapper i mean yeah. we don't make room for an for a third lane for yeah. a black singer not really it's it, i hate that about us by the way yeah. but there you were doing this very unique thing uh sort of george michael sort of in excess you know mm -hmm. seal hadn't happened lenny kravitz yeah. hadn't happened but terrence yeah. Trent darby was about to happen or was happening he so was, he was, uh, he'd happened. yeah so he um so tell me what the tell me what the game plan was when you first came out we've landed this like 20 i think you were 22 or something like that this young mm -hmm. hot singer and we're going to break him worldwide but then yeah. it didn't last or something what was the game plan if there was a game plan i mean you know what happened was i was i was gigging you know i was gigging around and uh I, I come from a musical family and I was gigging with my family, my uncles, you know, uh, since I was like 14 years old. Uh, and then I started writing songs. And before long, I had record companies after me and I ended up signing to what was CBS at the time, it became Sony. Um, and when you sign to Sony, you sign worldwide automatically. So okay. you are in Sony America or CBS America, automatically inherit you which nowadays is not always a case i think it's better that they don't so that they have the choice and the say whether they are that they, they think they can market you in america mm -hmm. so i you know then i then i started to have hits in the uk and obviously it was like well we need to get him over to america uh, and that was the course. That's how it that's how it worked that was the next step uh I, when i landed in america with my band, it was like a culture shock to me because everything was different. It was different in so many ways. It was like, wow, this is a whole nother planet. Uh, it was exciting also to be performing in a country that a lot of the influences that I had came from, yeah. you know? And yeah. so here I am in a country where it's all, a lot of that music came from and I was so excited about it. But the music business, was I instantly noticed it was more divided. It was more political, politicized. And my color all of a sudden was, I was more aware that what I was doing was really unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, that happened in the UK a little bit where when it was, when my song Cuddly Toy was first presented to Radio One, they were a little bit confused because they were like, well, he's black. How did that happen? But right. you know, they still end up playing it, you know? Yeah. Um, but having said that, 
after I did the first showcase for the record company and they saw that I was a proper artist and I was a proper live performer, not not just some pop guy, you know, they got on it and they they said, well, we're going to make this make this happen. But they were struggling with the fact that I was black and there was guitar in my music. Yeah. And eventually they can, you know, and then they did a good job because Cuddly Toy started charting quite well in the billboard charts. I think it went in the thirties and went, and all of a sudden I was, my video was on MTV, which again for at that time for a black artist was quite rare, you know, revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. So, and a lot of other musicians started to get into hip to like, wow, this guy is, you know, and at the time the America had living color. Oh they, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, so all some people were like, well, what's happening here? Is there some kind of... <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and for me, it wasn't like I was trying to change anything and go, wow, I'm a, I'm a black artist that uh, is, is rocking out. I just liked guitar and I liked occasionally putting distortion on it. And I didn't actually think about the political implications and the big deal. And eventually, by the time I got to writing my second album... I was told by the label in America that, you know, you putting that guitar in is an issue in America. We don't have that in America. And unless you want to get rid of that distortion on your guitar, we have a, we have a problem with you. Uh (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, it's just really strange. And I just said, well, I'll make the music that I make. And if that guitar tends to if it if it works for the song i'll distort it why not i just don't i can't get it you know and i always found it really strange especially in america it's a bit the same here but in america where that a lot of black music was just for clubs it was club music yeah and it wasn't a big huge live uh uh black industry there was just there wasn't you know um and I was just kind of ahead of my my time because now at least it's changing. You know, there's a lot of black artists that will play at festivals yep. uh, in Europe here and in America, and it's not it's not as much of a big deal. But when I was back then, you know, the fact that you had a band and you were playing live and you were gigging around, it just didn't happen so much. You know, uh, that's crazy. With that era, you know, but then in the sixties and the seventies black music was live and it was guitar and it's in, but then it seemed to die a death and it became all about uh club and drum machines yeah. and which yeah. i've got nothing i love hip-hop and i love our, and that's you know it's just that it, there wasn't an alternative world right. for black artists no so i think it made it difficult for me at an american radio uh to, for them to, to, to find that niche for me. And I've always tried to avoid being pigeonholed. And if you, if you avoid being pigeonholed, you, you, you give yourself a problem as far as they don't know what to do with you. Yeah. This is, I love that you're saying all of this because that, that's, this is exactly my perception. And I remember mm. hearing Cuddly, like I said, listening to Cuddly Toy mm. and thinking this is kind of revolutionary. And then yeah. they're not really being much else in the States. I mean, even your follow-up, it's funny you were talking about the guitars. I feel like the guitars, it's almost like you double down on guitars and get ready. The second yeah. album has even, it feels even a little rockier.
You know, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, so when that when you turn that into the label, does CBS just say, <laughs> "Nope, sorry, we're not going"? You uh, could do, you could be whatever you want to be, el- other parts of the world, but we have not, we don't know what to do with you in the states. Yeah, pretty much what happened. <laughs> that sucks. I think you know because what's weird is it's the second album, "Get Ready," introduced me to parts of Europe that didn't get the first album, uh, like Germany, which is the biggest market in europe and it started my career there and so but in america when they heard that i hadn't listened to their advice about getting rid of guitars they didn't they didn't release it i wonder okay so it never i've never i've never seen it in a record shop i've never seen it in a used bin none of that what's that that's the reason because they basically they thought that it was almost like a protest record or something And so they said to me, uh, unequivocally, we're not, but they said to me, you see, this is a thing that is difficult for artists. And George Michael went through it in a way with Sony, uh, was that if they don't like an album and they don't release it, I get that, but then release the artist off the label. Uh-huh. Yeah. And let yeah. me sort of go elsewhere uh, with my music. Yeah. But what, what happens is that they don't allow you to, you, you, they don't release you off the label so yeah. what they said to me is we love you as an artist but that record is too rocky or too whatever for america yeah. so we're going to keep you on the label and it's called shelving uh-huh and i was young so i didn't know how to navigate at the time yeah through that you know uh an america for a british artist can be quite intimidating yeah funny enough now i went a couple of years ago, or years, uh, a couple of years ago, I was on tour in America with Michael Mechanics. We did some dates over there, and I felt like it was a little bit closer to more, like more ready for what I'm doing now. Absolutely, it would be. You know, yes. Uh, and I would, you know, and I, you know, I'm would like to make moves to do a tour in America now because I feel like I'm ready. Yeah. That they're ready for me. Uh, normally, that would happen where you kind of do you hook up with a few other people, maybe from that era or whatever, like Terence, and you do a tour together. You do like a double or triple bill. So I just need to find people that uh, want to do that. I might reach out to Terence because I know him and we toured together before. Good. And we've named, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't answer to that name anymore. He's like some random material. Yeah. And he and he's very sensitive, dude. As far as he he'd never been back to the UK since it all went a bit funny for him. No. He just didn't want to. He didn't want to know. And he's let Terence Trent Darby go. But maybe there might be something, you know. And I know a few other people that we, you know, Chrissy Hine back in the day was the first person to put into my mind, like in the nineties, I think it was, doing a double bill. Really in America. Uh, which people do now it's it's yeah. it's trending you know? and i and i was like oh i don't know i don't know and i and you know i i really wish that i was more attentive to that but i'm gonna you know knock on a few doors i still think you know i i'm not the kind i don't think well 
America, it's, it's over because I'm a live performer who's yeah. still writing new material. I'm still making albums. It's yeah. still relevant, you know. It doesn't have to go straight to sort of arenas. It can be a, a small tour. Right. Uh, or, uh, you know, I'm going over to Nashville in October to do some writing. I'm spending time out there and just to sort of get a feel. Really? Go to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going in October. I'm spending a chunk of October in Nashville. So, you, what, you know. Are you going to, uh, this, this kind of blows my mind. I mean, do you have friends in Nashville and you're going to go write some country songs? I mean, it, it's not all country. That's a, that's a bit of a projection. Nashville's almost yeah. like LA was in the seventies now at this yes. point, but what are you going to do in Nashville? Well, I have, um, like a friend of mine, uh, Beverly Knight, she did two albums. Oh, sure. Nashville. Yes. It's not all, it isn't all country western now. It's a very yeah. hip, um, you know, uh it's, it's it's changing and i was again i was there i played at the winery with uh, mike with mike uh-huh. uh, a few years ago and it made me go and i you know i went out to some of the bars i was like actually it's got a little bit of its own thing and i don't know what's going to come of it and i and i have a a few friends in nashville uh-huh. that i met only over the last couple of years one guy uh is actually british that um did John Green, who used to live here, but he used to work a lot in Nashville. Now he's moved permanently uh, to Nashville. Ah. Uh, and uh, and I know a few people that I've worked with, that, and they were like, they kept saying to me, you need to come out. And they put yeah. the idea in my head. And uh, I will never be uh, a country and Western uh-huh. artist. <laughs> right. But again, I'm into, I'm open to fusing totally. the soul. You know, the same way Ray Charles did back in the day. And then... I want to visit Memphis, which is a few hours down the road in a car, mm-hmm. to maybe go to Al Green's church where he preaches on the Oh, and, yes. Know, and who knows? Uh, um, and they still have a studio there. I've been told that it's still run, family run. And I just want to just take, do like a little bit of a road trip. Uh, funny enough, I have a uh, few friends in, in, uh, in, Den- uh, in, Bol- in Boulder, Colorado. Of all oh, places. wow. Uh, that's just and, up the uh, road. Yeah, they were initially they're American, but they worked at Sony back in the day and then moved back to America. Huh. Uh, and uh, so I don't know uh, how this trip is going to sort of expand. Okay, that would be <laughs> great. I, you know, mm. So let me. Ask, I mean, are you prepared? This is something I was curious about. If you were to make an effort to do a tour, or you know reestablish yourself in the States that, like you said, that might mean, I mean, Mike and the mechanics can't even do that with, yeah. uh, you know, not with any consistency, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And yes. are you prepared to almost start over? I mean, to be the opener for to. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You, you would, you would have to start over because America is famously a massive place. Yeah. So people go, you can't, like in England, you can do a few gigs in London uh, and maybe just three or four gigs out of London up north and in Scotland. And really the UK will get to know about the buzz yeah. of what you're doing. But you can't do that in America. It's too big. Yeah. You know, from state to state. From t- so you have to be prepared to start from scratch. But the reason why I'm okay with that is because I started as a gigging musician not as a rock star, not as a pop star. I think when you are 
starting out as a pop star or a rock star, it's a long way down to fall and have to play in bars and stuff like that. But that's kind of where I came from and what I do, you know. So I love gigging. I just love gigging. I'm a gigging yeah. musician. Yeah. Uh, I don't need all the bells and whistles all the time where you've got like, you know, a hundred crew members and, yeah. and, you know, it don't need, I don't need all that to start touring in America. It's a win-win for me because I know the gigs are going to be good yeah. because I know what I do and I know <laughs> yes. how my band rocks. I know yes. how, what I do. So it's a win-win because the gigs are going to be good. <laughs> there's no one, there's no one is going to come to those gigs that is not going to like it. Yeah. And so it's not like I'm going to go there and be worried about how it's judged. I already know. Uh, so actually, when I went over to America in the late 80s, the gigs were instantly better for me than they were in the UK. In the UK, it took me a while to convince people what, but in America, they got it straight away. You know, I could so, see that. Yeah. Yeah, no, they did. And, you know, t talk is cheap, but, but I think when people go to the gigs, they're going to go, they're going to go. Wow. Okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> this, is, this is a real thing. This is a real deal. I, uh, I hope this happens. You know, I'm not. I'm not trying to convince people that I can. I can do stuff, or you know, yeah. I am. I am. Yes. I'm, a, yes. I'm a gigging muso. I play keyboards. I play guitar. You know, I write my stuff. It's just. It's. It's like. You know, I've had a lot of uh, of the the greats that have have met me and they've, they've supported. You know, like I remember meeting. Elton John, for example, uh -huh. and he's a proper musician. I, I relate yeah. to him because he's a gigging guy. He uh -huh. could play in a pub down the road and people, he would still <laughs> blow people away because he's a real deal. Right. He bought my uh, album, the, my album, the third album, he brought, uh, it was Christmas and he literally just went, I love this. And he bought so many copies for all of his mates. He said, you uh -huh. have to get into this. And he really was out there singing my praises That's and great. people like him, you know, uh, were and that, and that's a that's a thing. It's been endorsed yeah. by real, real the real people. Yes, know? yes. Ooh, I hope this happens. I would love it. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, it for anyone who doesn't know, I read a tidbit getting ready to talk to you that for a ten year span, you were the highest selling UK artist on Columbia. Is that true? You know, oddly enough. Um, I was definitely up there, yeah. I mean, and it's funny because when I released uh, the Permanent Shade of Blue album. I used to live my life this fast and free And do as I feel Right down to the bone, it was a rolling stone Just wanna be free But now I think it just might be A little more than slightly Changing my view Come and I've seen it go, but all 
yeah, which didn't sort of, uh, it didn't go straight. It wasn't like a big instant pop success. And I was kind of, when it first, the first week of release, normally, you know, you kind of know, you don't know. And I was thinking, I was resigned to the fact that maybe people didn't get it or whatever. Uh-huh. But slowly it started, I guess, by word of mouth to start selling. Uh-huh. And it not only sold in the UK, it was selling randomly in Australia. It was yeah. like going double platinum. It was selling like mad in uh, in Germany and in territories that had maybe previously didn't get what I was doing for whatever reason. Um, and so for, for, for Colombia at that time, it was, it wasn't just about singles. It was a big selling yeah. slow burning album and it just kept going. And I think it was one of my, was one of my best selling albums. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. It, and yeah. you're an MBE. Are you an, do you have an MBE or are you an MBE? I never know what the proper terminology is. Well, you are an MBE. You are, are an MBA. Andrew okay. Rochford MBE. Got it. If you, if you are OBE, which which it goes MBE, CBE, I think CBE and OBE, then you are you are technically sir. You have to. Okay. You know, okay. Cool. I want to. Um, yes. Uh, but you are given a medal, so you get given a medal, uh-huh. um, which is the MBE award. So there is an actual award. Crazy. But, yeah. But you know, if you when you have an MBE in your title, in uh-huh. some circles, it's taken very seriously. You get a few perks, you know. You might get the, the nicer hotel room, or the nicer table in the restaurant. <laughs> but it's a very British. It's a very uh, British thing, you know. Yeah. People don't talk about it so much in Europe, in Germany. They know it exists, but it doesn't really mean much to them. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't know much about it in America, but in the UK people take think that very seriously you know yeah. like <laughs> you an mbe you know yeah. it, 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 it used to get awarded to you know soldiers coming back from world war ii where you know it's just another medal and the, the people that were working at the hospitals it was just a recognition um and it was a high accolade you know uh-huh. and then and then in and for people in the arts and i got an mbe for my um my achievements in music and my contribution to music, which is quite an accolade, you know. That is I mean, huge. You know, that is great. I got it. Elvis Costello got it, and you know, wow. probably, yeah, people that are been in it a while. Yeah, uh, uh, and whether you, you know, if you've been involved in charities or whatever, but mine was for my contribution to music, and I I went to Buckingham Palace with my brother and my mum and my cousin and my. And the sad thing is that my brother uh, used to manage me, and he was very instrumental in my longevity in this in this industry. Right? You know, he was always through the ups and downs. He always believed in me, and actually, uh, after that happened, sadly, he died of cancer. Oh was, no! Yeah, but it was a very. Um, but the good thing is, is that it was a it was a moment when my mum was there. My mum is Caribbean from Caribbean, from Barbados, and they used to really, like, her, her generation, it was all about sure. the Queen. And yes. So for her, her son getting, you know, you know, and her being asked to Buckingham Palace was just like, yes. it was a real moment. And there I was in my family, and that was that at least my brother got to 
to see that moment. Good, you know? good. Mm-hmm. My brother is also, I, when I was reading about you and your brother and your relationship, my brother's also named Steven. And uh, he's one of, he's he and I are best mates as well. And so when I was reading about your connection to your brother, I didn't realize he had passed. I, maybe I did and I forgot or something. But well, uh, it all happened quite quickly. And oh, man. Yeah. And did yeah. you have the, do you, I, do you have the thing where like you you sort of kneel and they put the sword on both your shoulders well, you know that's kind when of you get the that's when you get the obe and the obe properly, okay okay yeah, and you're properly knighted oh, okay i think I'm a, I'm a knight of the realm and you see they've got all these different titles uh-huh um, but when you get this the sword on your shoulder is obe okay okay sometimes people who are mbe then get i guess posted up to OBE or, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Crazy. Yeah, it happens. I'm not, I don't need, you know, I'm really, I'm really um, flattered and honoured that yeah. I got recognised by that part of society. And yes. Everything. But I don't need uh, to be knighted. I don't need people to, uh, to call me sir. I, uh-huh. you know, my ego is not that fragile. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all nice, but then England's changing, you know. Now yeah. the Queen, since the Queen has died, it's it's more of a modern uh, royal family, you know. Prince Charles has got more of a uh, a new, a more modern or contemporary take on yeah. the world. And, and I think there's good and bad in the history of, of, of the empire anyway. Yeah. That people, yeah. that people are acknowledging now that, and so... Right. No, I don't need to. I don't need to be called cool, sir. You know. Okay. I, I, okay. You know, I love the accolades and everything, but you know, uh, if it happens, I won't say no. Some people of kind of get down. I think. I think the Beatles may have. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, I think uh, John Lennon or something because politically, whatever. But of course. I'm, yeah, you know. Okay. Um, is Mike Rutherford an MBE? You know what? Oddly enough, no. Which so I'm that okay, <laughs> yeah. he should be. But I wonder if you ever show up to like band practice with your medal. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Hi, everybody. How's it going? Oh, excuse me. I forgot to take off my MBE medal before I came to band band practice. <laughs> well, I remember when it was announced. When I told Mike, we were in Berlin. Uh-huh. And I said, Mike, I've just I've just received this letter. I've been uh, uh, I've been awarded. You know, I will be awarded MBE. He was so happy for me. Good. And, you know, I was kind of shocked because, I mean, I know like Phil Collins is uh, OBE or whatever. Uh, but, you know, Mike is in one of the bands that have had the most accolades you could ever get yes. on the planet. He's part of Genesis as well. You uh-huh. know, he, he doesn't need another another no. accolade to <laughs> confirm that, you know. Uh-huh. So, that he's so a legend. He was, you know, and after it, since he's been working with me, I think in his mind, which he said, he's just like, you know, in his mind, I should be even bigger uh-huh. uh, internationally. And so any any accolade that I get, I think he's even happier than I am. Good, good. You no, know, him and his wife and his family, they were so like, it's so deserved, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't need to rub it in his face. He's okay. just happy for me. Well, you can if you want, because I think that would be kind of funny <laughs> if you did. Um, okay, before, I know we're coming up on time. I, over the course of your career, whether it's Roachford or an Andrew Roachford solo album, I don't, I'm not even sure what the difference is, to be honest. You sort of evolved over time from the, from the black guy with guitars, rock guitars, into almost more of like a neo-soul classic soul singer. 
And uh, the Twice in a Lifetime album is so great. And I wondered, High on Love especially, is this kind of this this uh, hybrid of modern technology mixed with some neo-soul. I've been drowning in a world of madness Just trying to keep my head above the darkness Nearly giving up on everything Thought I'd never feel my heart again And the whole album feels that way to me a little bit. And I love it. So tell me about where this album came from. Was it, is it a lockdown album? Is it sort of you? And what's the difference between Roachford and Andrew Roachford? Yeah. You know, first of all, I have to say, you know, it's great talking to someone like yourself that you, you know your stuff and you, you're talking, you. makes sense. And, and it's like, wow, that's sort of fun to do. And it's, you know, and to get back to the question about, First of all, Rochford and Andrew Rochford. When I signed to, it's very strange because when I signed to the record label, I signed as Andrew Rochford, but uh -huh. they, they, they trimmed it to Rochford. And I, but then I had a bunch of guys that were my mates that uh, were working with me uh, on the recording. I wrote all the stuff, I, I did all the demos and everything. And back in the days, you had this thing called a Porter Studio, which was all onto cassette. And I used to just dub everything on top. And so I presented it to these guys as more or less the concept was there. But we went uh -huh. into the studio and we recorded together. And then we started on, in an old white van touring up and down. So it started to feel like a band as far as I felt like I should give them some accolades too. Uh -huh. uh, and so my managers suggest that, you know, why don't you include them in the name Roachford and it's on the umbrella. So because we, we were a touring band, I called it that, but I wrote all the songs and more or less all the instrumentation was composed by me. The bass lines, the guitarists, everything. So that's what made it kind of weird. I guess I used to call it the, um, the John Bon Jovi syndrome where <laughs> the name, the name of the band, it can, it can get confusing. Uh -huh. um, and I understand that, but it's because it, it happened in that way. Yeah. Uh, okay. And so when I when I when when we started to part ways and do our own projects, obviously the sound was still pretty much with me because I I I'd conceived the music, you know. And the, this the last album I did was a lockdown album for for sure. Uh, and what I think people didn't really understand is when I did my first album, everything I do. It's like me experimenting. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put, I mean, I grew up as a keyboard player, but then I started listening to Jimi Hendrix through the fact that I, I got a love of blues and I followed the blues 
<laughs> trail into yeah. the the rock thing. But for me, it was all like right now. Uh, I want to experiment with this with guitar and blah blah blah. But it was all I'm experimenting with it. But when that's your first album, people label you as that. This is what you yes. are. Yes. And then you try to sort of. Uh, you start thinking, well, this must be what I am. Uh, and then you get caught up in, I have to live up to now. I'm the, rock, you know, the black wild man of rock and roll. <laughs> and then I started to realize, you know what? I've always been the guy that, that experiments with mixing styles. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to come back to that. You know, I wanted to yes. allow, my, uh, allow myself that liberty of being doing that and not being held to ransom by fans that think, well, you should be just doing this. Every album should be these key ingredients. Yeah. And it's stifling for an artist. It's stifling when you're an artist that's broad, broader than that. Yes. You realize that you have to challenge your fans, not the other, you know, you got to yes. challenge them and come up with things that they think, you know, uh, when Ray Charles did the, the country album, a lot of his fans were like, what's going on? But, then they go, hang on a minute, it's actually quite good. Yes, yes. You know, if you're yes. writing good songs and, and the music is sincere, what you're doing is sincere and it's good, that's it. You're doing what you're supposed to do. So that's yeah. how I came to, I went through the journey of the Neo Soul because I spent a bit of time in Philadelphia and I, got, mm. I allowed myself to get affected by that. And some of what Neo Soul is, is coming from where I come from, the more raw yeah. raw side of black music which was yeah. rhythm and blues which was uh, you know the al greens the otis reddins uh so i allowed myself to be affected by hip-hop i don't close and i still remember seeing an interview with billy eilish and she was uh, doing an interview with the guy the lead singer from green day and she said i'm so glad that i'm younger that i was born into an era where i can experiment and be more genre yes. uh, fluid Yes. Goes, I can't imagine being born into a time where you had to stick to one. And she says, That's how right. did you manage it? And, and I'm like, yeah, because people like me, we had to put it out there and yeah. challenge people's ideas of what an artist is able to do. And when you're a musician, musicians aren't as, as fixed through the fashion element of music where you just are defined by one style. Yes. Yes. You know? Well, I love the new album. If we had more time, I'd ask you about more tracks <laughs> on it, but uh, Andrew, thank you for talking with me and thank you for, this thank was you. the conversation with you I wanted to have because I wanted to understand <laughs> you better. In the mm -hmm. States, to us, you're the cuddly toy guy, which unfortunately doesn't even get played as often as it should anymore. And uh, I know you've been successful over there and I've been trying to stay up on it and I just thought, what is his story? What, what, could, what must that be like to be so huge over there and... And how do you expand that throughout the world? And I'm so glad you talked to me. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, you know, you got, you know, I love gigging. I'm going to keep gigging as much people I can, I can, you know, infect with my music. Yes. One way or another, you know, I'll do it. You know, yeah. it's, all, it's lovely to be played on the radio. Uh, and I hope that happens in the future. Uh, and I just keep doing what I do. Good. I hope so, man. Thank you. And if you come to the States, I'll be there in the front row. All right, there you have it. Andrew Roachford. Pretty great, right? I hope if you're an American and all you knew was Cuddly Toy, now you know the rest of the story. And if you're anywhere else in the world where he remains huge, I hope you learned a few things. And again, that tour, that soulful Christmas tour, kicks off next month in just, what? That's only a few weeks away now. It's almost the holidays, you guys. That's crazy. Okay, now we're switching gears and we're talking about Teddy Geiger. Teddy... 
has been on quite a journey. So originally, back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, Teddy's career sort of launched, uh, well, largely with this song right here, For You I Will. He, back then he was a he, uh, was featured on this TV show, Love Monkey, that I used to watch. He was in that movie, The Rocker. Uh, he was sort of a, kind of a John Mayer type. Well, in 2017, he came out as trans. And so now, she has become one of the most successful song doctors, producers uh, in the business. And nominated for Grammys. A lot of collaborations with uh, people like Shawn Mendes. I wanted to talk to her about uh, Tyler Glenn of Neon Trees, because there's a Mormon connection, plus I like that band a lot. But there's a lot of other people like that. There's Lizzo, there's James Blunt, Five Seconds of Summer. Teddy is one of the most sought after song doctors in the business today. And you may not have known that if you didn't think about Teddy since For You I Will. Well, Teddy has a brand new album out called Teresa. I think it just came out last week. It's very much a studio creation. I get into it in here with her. Um, the songs feel, I don't know, they're layered. They feel like studio magic happening mood and feeling and, and the, the vocals are a little gauzy and almost uh, hard to make out. It's really where her head is at at this time. Anyway, I hope it's okay. I wanted to know about the specifics of her journey, what it's like coming out, what that feels like, how your life changes. I mean, it changes everything, obviously. I hope, hope, hope I did that in a respectful manner. That was absolutely my goal i hope i didn't it doesn't come off as being insensitive or exploitative because that was the furthest thing from my mind i've always really appreciated teddy and her talent and i wanted to understand it better and i wanted to understand her better and so i took the opportunity and i hope that was okay she i believe when we talked was in new york but i think she's based in LA and maybe even in London too. I'm not sure. Anyway, enjoy Teddy. <laughs> okay, Teddy. So I have to tell you a story. I used to watch Love Monkey and- um, Okay. I, it, it only lasted a few episodes, but I really loved that show. And it was before DVR and I think it was on maybe a Friday night. So it wasn't, it was, I would watch it if I was home and I remembered, yeah. you know, to watch it. But I really liked that show, and I thought it was so interesting to me that you were sort of plucked to be the, the catapult for that show. And then a few years ago, I will admit, I'm 50 years old. I don't stay up to date on current pop music very often, right? So a few years ago, yeah. I'm like, whatever happened to Teddy Geiger? Where did he go? And uh, because I... I really liked that show and I liked your songs and I liked the hits and I thought what an odd thing and you had just come out like the week before and I wow oh wow so that that's where Teddy Geiger went I had no idea mm -hmm. so anyway first and foremost will you tell me a little bit about how you were selected to oh, tell me about the love monkey story because someone in a back room somewhere was like teddy we're going to get you this series that's how we're going to give you a big national launch it's going to be a big hit right yes. someone's telling you all of this exactly 
I basically, I had, okay. So I did a show called love monkey. And on that show, Matt, this producer, Billy Mann, and he had just had a hit with Jessica Simpson uh, with Columbia records. And he brought me over there to meet them. And that all went well. And so they're under the Sony umbrella. Exactly. So somebody basically, they had an initiative at Sony to like take new signings and where there's opportunities to have like performances and shows or music and shows like, you know, just keep that just figure out who the new signings are and maybe use them. So I, I basically was like a handful of new signings they had that went in for that audition. It was the first time I'd ever auditioned for anything. <laughs> and yeah, somehow ended up getting the part. Um, so it was between you and several, it could have been about somebody else. It, the show could have been based around somebody else, but there were a handful of you who auditioned to be the, the the main focus of the show yes it, were the other people and michael roush know? actually who what's oh, that i said would anyone, i don't know who else, know anyone else? okay okay yeah michael roush continue no i was but michael roush um i think produced the show and he was amazing and became like a fan and had me also write like some extra stuff and i think he kind of really ended up he, when he heard the music i think he saw that going with the show as well yeah. and kind of felt that it really fit the the character that he okay. had in mind so so yeah. how does that feel to you when the show is canceled after i think it was like 10 episodes are, are you so um, are you too young to even really know is it like well that's fine that's i was thing. i was actually I was only in four episodes and three oh, of them had already aired. And then I was in the last episode as well. So most of the ones I was in aired. So I kind of was like, great. It served its purpose for my right. album release and whole thing. And right. I mean, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I didn't mind too, too much. I was yeah, like, I did, okay. And then the rocker, which I think I saw the rocker, but I don't remember it very well. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So was that another thing, yeah. like another way we're going to continue to launch Teddy? That was more, that was more like organic. I think it just because I had done the role before and yeah, they were looking for, again, just like musician parts mm -hmm. and I'd had a little acting experience and okay. kind of went in and went for that one and ended up, yeah, just getting the part. Okay. <laughs> but that was but, a lot for me actually because it ended up being like going and dedicating like two and a half months of my life to something that like wasn't really music and felt kind of detached from like what I actually wanted to be doing. So that okay. that was the last acting thing I did. Yeah. After that I was kind of yeah. I, I wondered about that. I wondered if the plan initially was to do a little bit of both or to dip your feet in both and see which one really took off. And then but then with I mean, The Rocker's a fun movie, but I don't remember it being like a giant hit or anything. Why did no. you sort of retreat afterwards? It seemed like all the machinations was in, were in place to make you into a giant star or at least launch this giant career. It just didn't. I love like writing music, creating music, being in the studio, and it was turning into less of that and more of like showing up as a performer, which was never, I kind of ended up doing that like as just out of necessity. Cause you know, I got signed and had to do the artist thing. And it's like, okay, I have to learn how to play live and figure that out. But what always actually 
drew me to music was the creative aspect of it and writing and recording and kind of like collecting demos and a lot of the stuff that kind of goes out the window when you're on the road all the time or you yeah. know like having to do movie stuff or uh-huh. and on my management at the time too was sending me a lot of like outside songs to cut and it's like they're all great it's all good but I really wanted to be writing and recording and making stuff and it just wasn't so basically i ended up i just wasn't super happy with it and yeah. slowly kind of yeah started spending back time in the, the studio, studio again and, yeah. yeah and it seems like that's your happy place yeah just being hyper creative in the studio so let's talk about teresa for a minute because when i listen to this album it feels to me like did you do everything it i don't know if you did i i don't have like liner notes or anything but it sounds like somebody just cooking up some interesting sounds, putting them all together in a studio. I did a lot of it. I started everything um, in Spain, like in this living room at a little table. Mm. And then I brought some of that stuff to New York and worked on it with my friend, Evan Voitas, who played some guitar on it and helped me with some of the writing and stuff. But yeah, I ended up kind of bringing it home. And also Andrew Maori, who did the mixing and stuff and, and then kind of worked with him. And, but okay. definitely, yeah, it has that. It has that feeling of, you know, a lot of it was like very personal and kind of coming from spending a lot of time alone with, with the stuff and then dipping in with people and getting some help. And, yeah, okay. You know, yeah. I think my favorite song on the album is More Than That. And um, when, when I listen to that, I mean, it starts out with that just sort of plucky guitar chords, but it slowly builds and builds. And there's that moment a few seconds into the song where just those two piano notes start and it, and it come in and it, it gives it this depth. And it, it's just an amazing, I, every time I listen to it, I think it's, this is such an amazing uh, example of layering one sound over another, over another. It's only three or four different things, but it's giving you this deep well of emotion and feeling. And it feels like something like I was saying, I don't know if it's you or your friend who was just sort of strumming this little thing on a guitar and then got looped into, oh, oh I'll hit these two piano notes and create a song out of that. You know, tell me about yeah. it. That that one, actually, I, I was jamming with another friend of mine, Julian. We were 
writing some, working on another album, and um, I think we were working on some of Niall Horan's stuff at SARM in um, Sarm, London. Like in London SARM? Trevor Horan's SARM? In London. Good gosh. Yeah. Trevor Horan's my favorite producer ever. So, and he was on here about a year ago. So you even working, that's like hollowed ground to me. Wow. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, so, and then basically we went in and jammed and he pulled up like a drum sound and I played those, the initial guitar stuff. And then did like one more jam take over that and some vocals. And then it kind of sat like that for a couple months. And then actually at some point I was back in LA and I did the pianos and did some extra drums and stuff on top and kind of like built that other layer of, but yeah, I really like actually this whole, a lot of this album came out of just like building up layers of things and you can tell and kind of like seeing what grew out of that. Yeah, you can tell. I love it. Another song I really like is um, It's Never Enough. Is your singing style now purposely almost indecipherable? <laughs> you know, like it, I've listened to the out. I just got it the other day. So I've listened to it like four or five times, get ready to talk to you. And now on multiple listens, I can start to make out what some of the words are, but it's, it's almost gauzy floating in the back. I don't know. Is that intentional? Why? Mm -hmm. Why? I think, I mean, that's kind of how it like came up basically a lot of the album is like me reconnecting to my own personal like voice as an artist and because I'd done so many so much work on other people's projects again it's almost it's different not as an entertainer but like as a producer or a songwriter where basically the other person has the vision and it's kind of serving that thing in them and I'm trusting them as an artist to have a vision so it's it was like me kind of rekindling that in myself and kind of listening for like okay what is it that I have to say or what is it that's like around in there and then yeah, kind of getting it in these like blurry snapshots and then also wanting it to be like as a body of work, a kind of a space for other people to do that same sort of thing where they can kind of hear what they want to in it. And it kind of has that like dreamy quality where mm -hmm. nothing's like too pinned down and there's kind of like some possibility in the 
listening to just mm-hmm. hearing a word and then hearing some other words. And that's so much of my process was doing that and mumbling and hearing what kind of words I heard in the noise, like inkblot style, and then mm. creating the lyric out of that. So it's like almost mm-hmm. by leaving it a little foggy, you can almost do that yourself as well. And then I'm putting out the vinyl, which she'll have all the lyrics with like a little book and also oh, like go on um, good, okay like who did what and played what yeah. and stuff yeah okay um what's were you listening to someone or something that influenced you tr- to make music that way like for instance when i listened to the very first track i belong here Out of the gate, it sounds just like a Robin Guthrie from the Cocteau Tin Twins guitar, you know. Okay, yes, yes. Love Cocteau Twins. They're a great Me example. Too. He of was on here a while, year or two ago. Yeah. yeah. I love them too. And it's straight out of that playbook. So I'm thinking, boy, but then it goes on. It doesn't stay there. It's this introduction for about a minute. And then it goes into the gauzy, blurry sort of dance pop or whatever that's happening. So is it listening to Cocteau Twins that made you think I'm going to make an album like this? Probably a little bit. Oh, okay. I was. I, I really like Grouper as well. Oh, I don't know them. Grouper? The Grouper's great, yeah. Okay, okay. I love Grouper. They're great. Um, she does, like, it's, it's very, a lot of, like, experimental, but, like, beautiful ambient mm-hmm. but like some of them are like full-on songs some are a little more just kind of ambient like and they go on and yeah. there's like noise and it's really beautiful huh um, yeah were you listening to i really like young thug as well you know oh. he's another one who you kind of have to like get in there and decipher you think he's saying something else and they're like oh no that's true yeah wow um i'm curious and i hope this is okay to ask i'm curious how your how, how your approach to making music has changed since coming out? Are you are are you if you if you were? Oh, I don't know if I'm saying this right. If you were still the uh, the male Teddy Geiger, would that guy be making the same music that you are making now? No, probably not. Just okay. even like, just yeah, no. <laughs> uh-huh. A lot has changed. Yeah, there was there was so much more. Um, I was a lot angrier and more repressed, and there was a lot more shame around a lot of things that 
I was unable to talk about. So I did feel like I kind of kept coming up against a wall. Whereas like when I came out, I do feel like even, even me going and making another solo album and feeling like I need to reconnect to my creativity again. And like, and that there was something there to express. I do feel like through coming out and transitioning and allowing that stuff to like manifest and to be seen in that way has definitely opened up a, another, even in my relationships or as I'm dating or as I'm doing, you know, being in the world and stuff, there's not this part of myself that's always kind of like hidden from everybody. So I'm kind of already just operating in a space where I feel more myself and mm. more just showing up like in a more complete way where I don't have this thing that feels like repressed and I'm ashamed and I, you know, I can't, you know, and you're kind of, you, there's a little bit of anger that comes with all that and, mm -hmm. and being a little sad and, yeah. you know. So the, the layers of anger or oppression or um, that tension is sort of not there as much anymore in the music because you yes. read yourself. So now I can, write yeah. a little bit more about like ah oh, this is what i truly desire and be more honest with myself even about certain things or yeah yeah that makes sense dan yeah. wilson was on here about a year ago and we talked about yeah. you i do too he's such a nice man he's incredible, yeah. songs are great and so we were yeah. talking about as i said i've had kind of a fascination with you for a long time and um so we talked about it's love somebody right didn't he help you Mm -hmm. wrote life. So tell me about that process, because he was just saying how lovely it was. I feel like that song, in a way, is almost, I, I don't know. Maybe I feel like it's sort of almost your calling card, or uh, it's become your, like, a theme song, in a way. Does that make sense? Okay. Maybe I'm... I'm <laughs> I like it. Your reply is like, whatever. Anyway, continue. Sorry. <laughs> what was it like working with Dan? 
I mean, I've worked with Dan a bunch. He's amazing. He's just so, he's such a good listener. And then also can really like, he'll just come up with these things lyrically that are, that are, have so much like richness in them. And then he's also, so he's down to experiment and like play with sounds and like really like on that song, he did a lot of like cool guitar pedal stuff and brought a lot of like really interesting textures to it. And then Ricky, obviously who worked on that as well. We kind of did that all on Ricky Reed's pot. He was like doing a podcast during the pandemic and we kind of all connected on there and like started the seed of the idea and then did a lot of it. Um, basically did the whole thing kind of remotely and collaborated just like by sending ideas back and forth and stuff. Yeah. Um, speaking of people you've written for, tell me about working with Tyler Glenn on his excommunication album. You did Southern, Sudden Death. I never asked to fall from grace You saw it all over my face I left for California I'm searching for my soul But I hate the traffic in LA Everybody's saying, baby You got a little crazy My mind's a little hazy Better not say a word, but Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So some background. I grew up Mormon and um, I used to go out with the Neon Trees' drummer's sister. And so back in like college, uh, the drummer wasn't always, her name's Elaine. She's great. She wasn't always an active Mormon. And before that, she was in another band and her sister would send me her CDs of her old band saying, what do you think? How do you like it? And then when they when she joined Neon Trees, her sister Lynn was like, "Oh, she's in this new band now. They're going to get really big." And I was like, "Well, the last one didn't get that big. I, I we'll see about this." So, Tyler Glenn, I, Neon Trees has been sort of in my life and in Mormondom for a long time now. And his excommunication album was a major artistic statement for him. Coming mm-hmm. out, leaving Mormons, all that kind of stuff. And I'm guessing you two may have had s- something in common, uh, a mutual thing to rebel against at that time. Sorry, that's such a wow. long preamble. No, totally. I mean, probably even more so than I than I realized. Yeah. because Well, I, I, did you like work together in a room? Did he call you and say, I want to write with you? How did it happen? We ended up. I, I did, I was doing like for, for different periods of time of like in LA, just doing a lot of like, right. It was during, I think it was me, him and my friend, Danny Parker. And we all wrote, I think at my house in Los Angeles. And I remember, I remember we went to a cafe. This was a while ago, but Mm -hmm. it was one of those, like, you know, I think it was the first time we'd worked together. 
he came through. Sunday. I just, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This would have been before you came out. So yeah, maybe. This is a long time ago. I barely remember the day, but. Yeah. I, I remember. So that's interesting because here I am conflating two people with their with their own personal journeys coming out in different ways, but you weren't out yet. That's true. And right. so you were. I'm wondering if he just th- saw you as just a really good songwriter, song doctor that he could work with, or if there was some mutual understanding between you two of your journeys. You know, I don't think it, there was like expressly but yeah. probably internally and yeah through the song kind of i gear, guarantee i was relating to the fact that you couldn't you know to not yeah. fully being able to be who you are and having to like and yeah. yeah huh wow okay yeah i just find that kind of stuff fascinating um me too that's actually just really interesting yeah he you know he was mormon and he and then he was then he came out and then he stated that he wanted to continue to be Mormon and be out. And then he yeah. realized he couldn't do both. And uh, so his excommunication album is him like just being so angry at Mormonism and religion in general. And uh, that's so that's why I'm projecting on to both of you this you know mutual story. Interesting. So do you when you put out an album like Teresa, I mean, do you go on tour? Do you what do you do or do you just put it out there and go back to writing songs in the studio. I'm probably going to put it out and just go back to writing songs in the studio. <laughs> Although I have been, I, I did like learn a couple of the songs and I've been playing with the idea of like figuring out who would be a band. There's some friends mm-hmm. of mine that are like, I'd play in your band if you made a band and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And it's all the idea of that though. It's all just, it's not really like, I didn't, I don't know how to do it even like yeah. I'm not, I'm not in that world so much that, and it's been so long since I've played live that I'm just kind of like starting to think about it and starting to like learn some of the songs. And if mm-hmm. at some point, I don't know, maybe get a band together. It would be fun to play shows, but also I'm just not used to it. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, this is what this is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably just keep making, I'll probably just make another album and put that out too put it out and then go back to do you have like a uh if you could let's talk you know bucket list if you could collaborate with anyone in terms of songwriting who would it be and i don't mean just like who do you like but if you think oh every time i listen to so-and-so's music i think i could add so much to what they're doing (gasps) do you think like that i don't know oh i really don't know i i Cause yeah, the people I like, I'm just, I want it just like it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to touch it. Just make uh-huh. it and then listen to it. Yeah. I always have a hard time I, because it's like a lot of the collaborations that have felt amazing or in the, like you, you, I just, you could never guess. And I, I just really, I want that feeling where it's like, we're all collaborating and it just, so, it feels like nobody's collaborating with anybody and Uh it's kind uh of like we're all in this room and the song is kind of happening and you just kind of disappear into the process of everybody kind of like playing that role and like 
sometimes like when it clicks, that's just like the favorite. And I don't, it could be like with uh, anybody. It's just that feeling of it, of it yeah. kind of like clicking and, and everybody being in that. It's so space. interesting you say that, Teddy, because that is exactly what Teresa sounds like. Exactly. You know, not uh, un unfussed over, not exact, like just letting the songs breathe and happen kind of organically mm -hmm. that's what it feels like a vibe you know Thank you. yes yeah that's exactly what it feels like interesting um can we talk can we talk about your journey some what yeah i just think it's so okay so and if, forgive me if i ask just really dumb ignorant questions but i i've i've been wanting to speak in fact i remember like i said when i in 2017 when i thought whatever happened to teddy geiger and i i google you and it was like a week after you had come out I immediately fired off an email, I think, to maybe your website or something, and I never okay. heard back. And it was totally fine. Or maybe I didn't, or I thought about it, but I thought, I don't know if I'm even equipped to have this conversation, but I really want to. So tell me, like, when you're on Love Monkey, how much of your... Okay, here's the, here's the question I really want to ask. Before coming out, how much of your day are you aware of the fact that you don't feel right? um is it just a mood thing like i'm in the, i was listening to an interview with you i'm in the mood to paint my nails or is it a from you wait moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed something doesn't feel right and i'm carrying this burden with me every day it's not always fully present because especially like involved in something it's like even if you know you have like any pain like my neck is out and and you know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't doubt it up. But since we've been on the interview, I haven't thought about it. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Just because I'm in the thing sure. and I'm not like yeah. thinking about like, oh, my neck is so stiff, you know, because yeah. I just kind of got lost in what we're doing. Yeah. So I think it's it's that kind of thing where it's it's less like it's in the space where things would be kind of like quiet or yeah. when I'm kind of left with myself it's like what that felt like to me and also just like exactly things i wanted to do like painting my nails or you know just dressing more feminine or you know beginning to take hormones and and kind of fully express that way that was always mm -hmm. something that when i was quiet with myself was just kind of true and then yeah. you know like getting into relationships it was always there's there was always this thing that I'd come up against where you know with my partner it's because they kind of you know they would sign up for they're meeting somebody that seems like a man but then like the closer you would get to me the more certain things were just true and like there would always be this you know it, you just couldn't get that I I don't know exactly how to say it but it there was it was something that was always that. present especially in my super close romantic relationships and then present in the world in that the closer I'd get to somebody, the more I'd feel like they like didn't really fully know me. And there was mm. something that they didn't know. And if they knew it that, yeah, but it was very, it was actually the easiest thing to do is to be with like strangers or in like a work environment where I could sure. just kind of like fully yeah. dissociate into what I was doing or, yeah. or yeah. Um, again, forgive me if this is a dumb question. Are you, do you like men or women? You like women, right? I'm, I'm like pansexual. I now, like, okay. I can, yeah. 
Okay. Because I you were engaged to Emily Hampshire from uh, yes. Kids Creek. Was this all going? Well, I don't know the timeline. Was this after you were starting? That was to like my first relationship after. Okay. Coming out, which Isn't was she like pan really, too. She is pan. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that was crazy because it, I was. It was the first time I was actually in relationship with somebody without kind of where everything was just kind of out in the open from the beginning. And that's how we met. And so that felt very different to all of the relationships I'd had before that time. Yeah. Yeah. But was it just too early to get fully involved or marry somebody like Emily or anyone else for that matter, when you're newly coming to terms with who you were? I I think so. Yeah, probably. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I, I'm still just, I still feel like I'm kind of settling into it, but I definitely feel a lot more settled now than I did at that time. If I look back and I mean, even just in the last year, yeah. Um, I have to have done a lot of work to settle. I bet. I bet. I'm thinking back to, I think love monkey was around 2007 or something like that. That was before we even had the words for this kind of stuff. I mean, trans is, you would have been a, uh, what a cross dresser uh, yeah. or something like that, whatever word we had back then, totally different than what we have now. Exactly. So what at that time, when you were in those quiet moments aware of what was really happening inside of you, what did you think would happen? Did you just figure this is something I'm just going to, if I marry a woman and I'm not going to tell her this, or if she finds out, I'm just going to I mean, I would, I would my tell. Girl. Okay, but it just wasn't, you know, like yeah. the women I was dating were not gay. Yeah, but because they, <laughs> so it was like in any in a lot, and you know, so if you're dating somebody that like doesn't have feelings for women, and you're kind of like trying to present more as a woman, and then like sometimes you know, home was like my safe space, so it's like, well, I want to be, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, I'm not gay, and it's like, right, I know, but <laughs> it gets confusing. So it it's does. Like, Thank you for but answering is, my um, questions, by the way. No, I, but I, it's true. And I didn't really have the words for it or a way yeah. to really express it. Like, I don't think I knew what being trans, that trend, being transgender was a, I think, um, she has she banned. Oh, Laura Jane Grace from Rise Against. Yeah, Laura yeah. was the first um, trans that person a- that I actually... That was um, the first, I mean, out in Rolling Stone, that was the first a lot of us knew about that kind of stuff. Yes. You know? Yeah. And that was, I was like, oh my gosh, I relate to that. Because yeah. exactly, a lot of the other stuff that I had heard or seen, I was like, yeah, that's that's not really how I yeah. feel. And then I remember reading that article, actually, a girlfriend of mine sent it to me, like, check this out. And I was like, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and then from that moment on, it kind of like, I was pretty clear that that would be, but I didn't know how to even begin or what really yeah. the reality was of that or how to, um, but that was definitely a big moment for me hearing her so, story. Yeah. Is I would imagine deciding to transition fully as being a major decision in one's life, because it's like, you can't go back. You know what I mean? And I'm wondering who helped you make that decision. And do you, 
have regrets is the wrong word, but is there anything about being a guy that you maintain and take with you into this new chapter of your life? Ah. Well, the first part, I, I basically, I was at a point, again, what we were talking about, how it's kind of always with you, but not really, yeah. not always top of mind. There was this thing that was always there that would come up. I, I had like a lot of anxiety around it and that repressed, all the repressed feelings and all that stuff. And so I would get very, I'd have a lot of panic attacks and there was, there was a lot around that and a lot of compulsive behaviors that kind of like, kind of like OCD and things just to repress that much stuff. is like difficult and requires like, anyways, so I ended up going to treatment for a month and while I was there, came out to myself initially and was like, okay, this is very real. I was in a couple groups as well with like for gender stuff and also OCD groups and and then came out while I was there to family and like my manager and were family surprised at all? Did it did it shock family um, or is that something that they had always sort of seen in you? It was shocking, but also I don't. I mean, they were really good. They were nice about it. They weren't okay, like okay, good. So um, that's but I know my mom question. was. Yeah. They definitely had to process. There, mm -hmm. there was definitely like a processing. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd kind of started being a little more effeminate publicly before that, and like my aunt was kind of like telling my mom, like I think, I think there's something more than just mm -hmm. like painting her nails, and she was yeah. like, I don't know, but um. Yeah, so I came up therapy and then kind of kept going and then eventually just had to come out publicly because it's like I was going through the transition and then just, you know, was still doing a lot of work and meeting people in sessions. And so just wanted to kind of come out to everybody. Yeah. And then what was the second part of the question? I forgot. What was, what was the Oh, is there anything about being a guy? that oh, you sort of have taken with you no. or miss or I don't know what the right word is. No, no, no. totally <laughs> yourself now. So the reason I ask is because like I said, I'm just imagining once that's a decision that you make that you can't go back from. And mm -hmm. if, if when you make that decision, if you're like, well, I, I it'd be like, if you went on a diet and you're like, I, I'm, I'm going to go vegetarian, but I really miss, you know, Big Macs or something like that. I never get to have sure. a Big Mac again. Anyway, that's minimizing it, but that's the first thing that came to mind. Anyway, so no, there's nothing. You feel like you are 100% you and there's nothing from the guy, Teddy Geiger, that um, you know you miss no. or need to bring with you. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I hope I'm saying all this right. Teddy, I feel really out of my depth. Me thank too. you for indulging. Well, thank you for indulging <laughs> me. <laughs> no, I think I think it's it's I mean it's an yeah. interesting thing. It, it's definitely, yeah, I think it's important to talk about. And I think there are a lot of people that like just have questions and want to sure. ask questions. And I think, yeah, that's like. Well, let me ask you this then. What do you think about it's, it's becoming such a, it's a hot button topic, obviously politically. And then it's also becoming more mainstream and more normal. And, uh, I, as I said, I don't know that I have anyone trans in my life, but my kids do, you know, they mm -hmm. have kids that they're friends from school and stuff like that. And yeah. it's getting to be very normal and it's very normal to them. They don't think it's weird or different or anything like that, which is great. 
But yeah. um, is it showing that there are just so many people who probably grew up feeling like you and now have the opportunity and the dialogue to be their, their true selves? Yes. Yes. I think, yeah, I feel like moving towards that is is the goal and, yeah. and being able to to have that freedom of expression. And then there's obviously also, it's crazy, so many opinions, which is reasonable. I, you know, there's the whole conversation to be had. But I definitely think, um, yeah, it would have been very nice to have that language growing up and to be able to have those conversations and have people to talk to that had an understanding of how I felt growing up and yeah, had the, you, had the, yeah. Do you feel like, um, there's an age that by which you're a, a, a cut off where you're too young to make those kinds of drastic decisions? I'm curious. No, no, <clears throat> I, I have no idea. You yeah. know, I know for, for me, everybody. it was, it was, it was something that when it when it was the right time it's like it was very clear and i wonder if you had if you i wonder if you would have come out sooner if you had the safety net you know or the support that people have today Mm -hmm. yeah probably probably yeah you wouldn't have needed to hide it or anything like that because it's becoming so normal okay Well, um, I could go on forever, but uh, you've been a real sport in indulging me in my curiosity about all this. I just find you so interesting. I love that show. I liked your music, and I thought, and then you disappeared, and from my radar anyway. And I thought, where in the world did Teddy Geiger go? That what a great launch pad that show was, and but the show didn't last, and maybe Ted, Teddy didn't last. I don't know. And so when I went to look it up, and so many changes in your life. And, yes. uh, and all of, and what's interesting to me is that it, you've had, we may not know, but you've been hugely successful, hugely successful while all of this is happening. Production work, co-writing, Grammy nominations, whatever. You're like one of the most successful song doctors behind the scenes that's out there right now. And most people may not know that or connect the dots. That the for you I will guy is now this incredible Teddy Geiger, uh, you know, producer and everything. It's incredible to me that story. Thank you. <laughs> You're nice. Thanks for indulging me, Teddy. Teddy, I appreciate it. All right, there you have it, Teddy Geiger. I hope that was interesting, and I hope, hope, like I said, I hope more than anything that it was respectful because it was meant to be respectful. Uh, I just, I find her so interesting and what she's done and the success that she's had, especially since coming out, you would almost think in some ways that might be, I don't know, an obstacle that you had to overcome, but not for her. It's incredible to me. I want to close it out. This was another, this was a single. It's not on Teresa. We covered a lot of Teresa. So I want to show you something else. This is a single of hers called Shark Bait. Uh, I like this song a lot. I, I'm really just intrigued with everything that Teddy does. I find her a really interesting artist. So I hope we all learned a few things on here. And then as far as Roachford goes, as I said, the new album is twice in a lifetime. The tour kicks off next month in the UK. Unfortunately, I wish she would come back to the States. But check that out. And if you do, tell me how it goes, because I would love to see Roachford live. 
Now next week, we've been doing all these twofers. I think next week we're gonna go back to a one fur. Uh, it's one of the, it's a really great British alternative band of the 80s and 90s. After that, we go back to a twofer. But I think next week, that's what we're gonna cover next week. They have a brand new box set to talk about. Huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Again, folks, as I mentioned this before, he's got a lot of stuff going on in his life right now, some family issues. So wish him good luck and give him your love. I've also mentioned before, we have a promo mode that should be coming out soon. Hopefully it all depends on his schedule because of so much that's going on. We haven't been able to get there yet. But the promo mode is coming out, which is also a twofer. And then there's also a recap coming out soon. And um, I, I recorded a book club last week and a deep dive last week. And we have a panel coming up in a couple of weeks. Anyway, there's a lot going on right now. Hopefully it's all good content. Thank you, everybody. We love you.